Well, I would invite you to take your Bible, the Word of God, and turn with me back to a book that I would label Comfort for a Troubled World. It is the book of Psalms. It is uh, the uh, doctor's office. It is the pharmaceutic. Uh, it is the uh, comfort that God brings to those who either don't understand what's happening to them in their life, are deeply troubled, can't understand why God is silent, and all of the other questions we might ask of God. Uh, it is uh, intensely personal. Uh, it is uh, a, a deep, deep book, far more than uh, we'll have time this morning, even in one small psalm to explore. The theme of the book of Psalms, Comfort for a Troubled World, and this morning we turn to chapter 13, Psalm 13, which I've entitled, How to Wait Well for God. If anybody here knew me well, as does my wife, uh, they would wonder with what credibility or integrity I would preach a message entitled, How to Wait Well for God. My uh, dear wife, who has a, a really great sense of humor, has threatened me with a personal California car license plate, and it would be the letters uh, I-H, the numerals 8-2, the letter W, and the numeral 8. If you look at them in a different way but the same order, they would spell I hate to wait. That's the story of my life. Uh, I'm always in a hurry. There's never enough time to do all that I need to do, want to do. Uh, all these obstacles in front of me. As a rookie uh, seminary professor back in the 70s, I was known as a rapid Richard who could talk faster than a machine gun could shoot. And uh, these poor guys trying to take notes. Um, and I haven't slowed down much, just a little. Just a little in my uh, old age, I have slowed down. But uh, it, it is with uh, repentance, uh, it is with prayer that I come to this psalm, maybe more for my benefit than yours, but uh, you're going to have to listen in to what David has to say with to me, and I will relay that on to you. Uh, we live in a society, and we go through various seasons of life, that uh, cause us uh, great moments of anxiety. Uh, we don't know what's coming next. We don't know how to handle life. Uh, we are despondent. We are uh, impatient. And for lots of, of good reasons, um, maybe it is that uh, you're wanting to be married, but you're still single for way too long. Or maybe you're wanting to be healthy, but you continue to be ill. Uh, maybe as a young person, you're wanting to drive and you're still 12 and 13. Maybe you're wanting to be rich and you're poor or in debt. You're wanting to be uh, publicly recognized and uh, you are the most uh, anonymous person uh, in the Central Valley. Wanting to graduate and you're still a student and not sure you'll ever get there or wanting to be someone else because you don't like who you are, uh, wanting a life of ease as you travel the road of hardship and pain, 
maybe wanting someone in your family to be saved, a child or a mate or a parent, and they continue to openly reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wanting your problems solved because you're frustrated by defeat and on and on the list might go. I think we all will find some wonderful uh, instruction, some wonderful uh, encouragement, and some wonderful help in the passage that we've come to this morning uh, in uh, the diary of David, as it were, Psalm 13. Amazingly, God's plan marches to the cadence of an eternal clock, not the latest digital that's uh, calibrated in nanoseconds. More often than not, God's time is slower than ours, as evidenced by how often we hurry up and then wait. So this morning, David teaches us that timing is everything in the divine execution of God's will for our lives. Let me read the psalm for us. It's not a long psalm. It's not a difficult psalm, but it is a necessary psalm. How long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have overcome him, lest my adversaries rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in thy loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Uh, There's an outline in your bulletin. You can follow that if that's a little too complex or a little too long. Think of the first two verses as David's David's inward reaction to life in front of him, verses 3 and 4 as his outward reaction, and verses 5 and 6 as his upward reaction. That's one way to look at the psalm. Or verses 1 to 2 is his protest, verses 3 to 4 is his prayer, and verses 5 to 6 is his praise, or as the outline they asked me to submit so you could have it in your bulletin for those of you that are real students. Verses 1 to 2 is David's impatient complaint, verses 3 and 4 his insistent cry, and verses 5 to 6 his indomitable confidence. No matter how you look at it, he is absolutely perplexed at the beginning, bewildered in the middle, and becalmed at the very end. It's obvious from David's repetitive protest. I hope you picked that up. How long, how long, how long, how long? If you're a student, circle that. And you got four circles in Psalm 13, verses 1 to 2. Uh, there is this uh, sense of an intensity in the heart of David who cannot understand why he's in the circumstance he's in and how long he's been there 
and at the moment without hope of deliverance. How long, how long, how long, how long? This is uh, no short wait in God's waiting room of life for David. In many of the Psalms, there's a little historical narrative before you begin the Psalm, and unfortunately here there is none. And I ask the question as I look at the Psalm, what what was David facing? What uh, brought out the same question four times? And I think the best answer that we can come up with and the one that makes the greatest sense and correlates with other portions of the Word of God is this is sometime between David's being anointed by Samuel at about the age of 16 or 17 as the king of Israel and age 30 when he was finally crowned. It's about a 13 to 15-year wait on the part of David from what God promised and anointing to what God delivered in crowning. And maybe you remember that throughout all of those 13 to 15 years, David was being chased in the wilderness by the then reigning king, Saul. Wherever David was, Saul went. He had one intent, and it was to kill David. Uh, You could look, and we won't this morning, in Psalm 52, 54, 56, 57, 59, all of which have a little historical notation and language much like we're reading in Psalm 13. You can imagine how brutal that was. God has promised. Uh, Saul has been rejected. Why wait so long? Doesn't make sense to me, but it made sense to God in God's own timetable. We would believe that uh, this psalm occurs somewhere in the narrative between 1 Samuel 19 and 1 Samuel 24. If you want to, uh, on your own, you can go back and uh, read through that. That would make the very most sense in terms of David's seeming despair in verses 1 to 2 with his four how-longs and correlate nicely with the psalms and that narrative. As we read through those six verses, maybe you noticed how many I, my's, and me's were there, and probably none of you counted them. Only someone like me who pays attention to detail would count the I, my's, and me's. But they're very, very important to tell us this is a very personal prayer on the part of David. It is a very intense prayer on the part of David. David. If I were waiting that long, I can't imagine being promised something at any part of my life and having to wait 13 to 15 years to get there. It just uh, is unimaginable with my personality and uh, my basic nature. I'm glad that I've got Psalm 13 to go back to. Well, with that in mind and with my hope, I'm far more of a teacher than I am a preacher and hoping that you somehow can remember something that we said this morning, most importantly, something that God said. Let me give you an easy clue to this particular psalm. It's an easy way to remember it. And it's the letter D in 4321. Got it? D, 4321. The author is David. It begins with four how-longs. 
There are three sections, one and two, three and four, five and six. There are two verses in each section, and there's one message, how to wait well on God. Got that? You can pass the quiz uh, at the end of the message if you've got D, four, three, two, one. David joins a, a distinguished group of saints who had the same uh, experience. Uh, the prophet Habakkuk later on, in chapter 1, verse 2, who's watching the pagan nation Babylon decimate the people of God, Israel, and he cries out, Lord, how long will you let the unrighteous reign over the righteous? It doesn't make sense. It was John the Baptist in Matthew 11 who had seen all of the miracles of Christ but now is in prison, about to be headed. He sent his disciples to Jesus and said, Are you the one or should I look for another? And it was our Lord himself nailed to the cross and in his humanity that cried out, My God, my God, why? Why is thou forsaken me. Have you ever been in the waiting room? You all have, haven't you? While you were there, did you think you had to wait too long? I don't know about you, but most of the time I have. No question about it. Let's see how David handles it. Verses 1 and 2, which is his uh, inward look. All he's thinking about is himself and he's making a uh, spiritual protest, so to speak, before God. And there are four things David is going to announce to God uh, in prayer. He begins in verse 1, How long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? Lord, I am walking through life, And you who are the omniscient God who knows all things at all time from before eternity to the end of eternity, which has no end, I am the only person that you have ever forgotten. Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? This is real for David. We'll come back to the theology behind this, but this is very, very real to David. Secondly, second stanza, line of verse 1, how long will thou hide thy face from me? Lord, not only do I think you've forgotten me, but you now have abandoned me. And you know the question he's asked, is there something wrong with me? Is there some imperfection in me that would cause you to uh, look away from me, to forget me, to abandon me? me. Third thing he says is the first line of verse 2, how long shall I take counsel in my soul having sorrow in my heart all the day? Lord, I am tremendously discouraged. I have been forgotten. I have been abandoned. I'm horribly frustrated and feeling for Lord, the grief is more than I can bear. And if all of that is not enough, the very last line of verse 2, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? 
Uh, I am a failure. I have been defeated. There is no hope for success in my life. Frustrated, feeling forlorn, sensing failure. David said, you've forgotten me, you've abandoned me, and therefore I am discouraged and defeated. He is in the slough of despond. It is dark in David's life, and it is pressing in from all sides, and David says in his protest, Lord, basically, I see no way out of this dilemma. There is no hope in my life. Why have you, for the first time in your existence, acted contrary to your divine attributes? Wow. It's not a good day from David's perspective. I have a dear friend. Maybe he's been here, Dr. Bob Provost, president of Slavic Gospel Association. Uh, Maybe he's uh, been here. Maybe you know him. Uh, We have traveled uh, in Russia and Ukraine on numerous occasions. Uh, In the days in which it was the USSR and not what it claims to be today, Bob had uh, just an infinite trust in God providing things that... uh, I couldn't imagine, and I couldn't tell you how many situations I have been put in by him where he abandoned me to go do something else. I can't speak Russian or Ukrainian, believing that God would deliver me from whatever. And Bob would come back, and I would say, Bob, how could you do that? And he would say, Dick, it's a theology lesson coupled with a theology test. And his point was all of life is either a theology lesson or a theology test. It is what I am learning about God and able to apply my, to my life under the most difficult of circumstances. And then how well do I apply what I know when the pressure's on? And that's a great perspective on life for believers in Jesus Christ and those who have the Word of God. Let me take time out for just a moment to raise a question that maybe you're asking. If you're not, it's a good question to ask, and I'll try to give it a little bit of an answer. If God is so loving, and if God is so caring, and if God is so everything, then why is he seemingly silent and inactive at times, particularly in my life? Well, there's a number of good reasons, and the Bible reveals them to us. Uh, 1 John chapter 5 says that if you are praying anything, God will answer your prayer. That's the way people normally quote it, but there's a caveat in 1 John 5, and it is if you are praying anything according to my will. Not my will, but his will. Are you praying, Lord, please provide or do so long as it advances your kingdom plans, as long as it brings glory to you to the max? Or secondly, 
Uh, are you praying with the motive to bring God the greatest glory? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, 31 rather. Whatever you do, and you say, well, you mean the grand things? No. Paul says whatever you do, whether it's eating or partaking of a beverage or the other mundane things of life, do it all for the greater glory of God. Is there sin in your life that would cause God to hide his face from you? Isaiah chapter 1 and 15 says that if there is continued habitual sin in your life, regardless of when you pray, how you pray, how frequently you pray, it will be as though God is hiding his face from you because there is sin separating you from a God who is, we sang it, holy, holy, holy. This next one gets me, but it's in the Bible. Count it all joy, my brother and sisters, when you fall into a diverse temptation. It really means uh, multiple trials. For the trying of your faith worketh patience. There's that dirty word again. And let patience do its perfect work in you. If you want to be perfected in the image of Christ, you need to develop your ability to be patient. And the way that God generally chooses to accomplish that are multiple trials in which your attitude is joyful. You say, that's impossible. Well, I would agree with you to some extent. It is impossible in the flesh but it is absolutely possible fully and every time as controlled by the Spirit of God and the knowledge of the Word of God. I don't think any of those four were true in David's situation here. I think this next is. Is it the right time? Is it the proper time? Is it God's time to perfectly accomplish God's purpose in whatever trial I'm in? If you recall in the Gospels, Jesus frequently said, we're, we're going to do this or we're not going to do this because, or they're not going to do this because my hour has not come. He was keenly aware that God had a timetable and it wasn't going to be slower or faster than God intended. But finally, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Hours before Jesus would be nailed to the cross, Jesus announced in John 17, 1, my hour has come. So the question is, if God seemed to have forgotten you, abandoned you, you're despondent and defeated, it could just very well be that the work that he's doing in you, the people around you, has yet to be accomplished as God wanted it to be accomplished, and your hour has not come. And thus God leaves you in that set of circumstances. I think for David, uh, that was uh, exactly what was going on. You look like a pretty bright bunch. And I know with Scott as your pastor, you are a well-taught bunch. Do, do you remember why Saul 
was appointed king of Israel? I, I know it's probably been three or four sermons back since Scott taught that. It was because the people wanted a king like every other country. They wanted him tall and handsome and dynamic and all of the other outward characteristics that we think of a, a strong, natural leader. And finally, God relented and let the people have what they wanted. Saul, who fit the bill for all of that. And he didn't work out. He didn't work out well for the people, and he worked out even worse for the economy of God. And more than likely, it is that God wanted the people of Israel for a period of 13 to 15 years to be reminded of what a poor choice they made and the perfect choice that God made. And finally, when Saul was killed in 1 Samuel 31 by the Philistines, David then was anointed king of Israel. The issue was not David. The issue was God's will, God's purposes. And I, I think that really is the reason that would help explain all of this. If none of that seems to answer your questions, I'll give you one other passage you can rely on, it, it, and you're really going to have to take it by faith, and it's Deuteronomy 29, 29, and that is the secret things belong to God. And that is no matter what the preacher says or what passage you read or what you think or what you uh, propose, you'll never understand it this side of heaven because it's something that God has not been revealing. Well, whatever it was, David believed he was in a deep, dark well and there was no way out, and what God had promised, therefore, would not be delivered. And all he could think about was himself and his circumstances. But in verses 3 and 4, he moves from looking inward only, at least to looking out and surveying the scene. And he moved from his uh, spiritual temper tantrum, as it was, Lord, how long, how long, how long, how long, to prayer, to beseeching God, to uh, remember him, to return to him, to encourage him, and to give him victory uh, in his flight from Saul. And so he moves to an insistent cry. The most important words in verse 3 are the last four, O Lord my God, O Lord my God. The personal pronoun, my, is used in a far more positive sense here because David is now acknowledging that the God of Israel is not somebody else's God that he doesn't know, but, Lord, you are my God. I am the sheep of your pasture. And when he cries out, O Lord, he is acknowledging that God is his sovereign and that he is to be submitted at every moment in every detail 
in every circumstance, whether he understands it, whether he agrees with it, whether he feels like it. He is my God. He is my Lord, and therefore I submit to it for the greater glory of God. And so he prostrates himself before the patient character of God as the impatient prayer that God would do something. In verse 3, he humbly asks for understanding, and he asks for attention from God. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. That's a a major step forward from verses 1 and 2. God always had his eyes on David. David didn't always have his eyes on God, and that was the problem. His eyes were inward in verses 1 to 2, and at this point they're outward, and he could at least have a glimpse of God. And there were three reasons that he would pray this prayer. Last second line of verse 3, both lines of verse 4, and it's marked by the little word in my New American Standard, less, then it just means unless. Lord, consider and answer me and enlighten my eyes. It has helped me understand unless there be three unthinkable consequences. Number one, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lord, please, please give me understanding because if you don't, I'm just going to die. And at least he's reconciling himself to if I die, okay, I die. Number two, lest my enemies say I have overcome him. Lord, if you don't do this, I'm going to die. And there goes the future king of Israel. As if that would present a problem for God. And Lord, do it lest the enemy seemingly, at least in their own eyes, not to mention the rest of the worlds, think that the enemy, whose God is not you, have defeated me, who will be your future king. And then finally, at the end of verse 4, lest the enemy, my adversaries, rejoice when I am shaken. Uh, Lord, if if you don't help me understand this deal, there are going to be some tragic consequences. And at least he's not protesting. He's trying to tell God some things as if God didn't already know these things. And I think he's moving in the right direction. I think his attitudes are improving, but he has not uh, really uh, arrived at where he needs to be to deal with life. If the psalm stopped right there, I'm not sure what God would have done. Well, I am fairly sure I know what God would have done. He would have kept pounding David until David got to verses 5 and 6 in his heart and uh, in his attitude. 5 and 6 is an absolute major 
turnaround from David looking uh, inward and outward. If you're looking at your problems on the horizontal level, you're in trouble. Because at the horizontal level, whether it's you or others, the problem or the solution, uh, you are at least forgetting about, if not abandoning, all of the resources of God to deal with whatever plagues you and for divine purposes which are perfect. So in verses 5 to 6, he turns to an upward look. And he's turned from a protest and a prayer finally to a praise. He's put his eyes on the glory of God. It'll settle his heart. It'll remind him of all that God has done earlier. There were multiple sons of Jesse that God could have chosen as king of Israel. Remember all of that? And uh, Samuel went through all of them from the oldest and the strongest to the next to last. And God said, no, 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 no. How about David, youngest, smallest? He's so unimportant, we've gathered for the prophet and put David out to pasture with the sheep because you certainly couldn't be interested in him. And Samuel says, is there not another son? Uh, Fetch him, for he's the one, the youngest, the weakest, and the least likely to accomplish God's purposes as the king of Israel. Surely David at this point is thinking, why did God do it that way? And if he did it that way, does he not intend to accomplish at the other end that I can't understand, I can't see at the moment, what it is, what God promised God would do? And so he prays, verse 5, I've trusted in thy loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. He looks to the past in line 1, and as a result of having trusted in God's loving kindness, he promises that his heart would rejoice in God's salvation. And I believe the deliverance that he's talking about there not only is a spiritual deliverance, but a physical deliverance up to this very hour. And believing that what God has done in the past, that uh, God would do in the future. It's interesting that verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, if you follow the pronouns, are all about David and all about God. It's, it's just a, a very intimate uh, discussion that God allows us to look into that David had, more than likely from a cave, hiding from Saul, who's pursuing David to kill him so that Saul's kingship can continue and David's kingship potentially would end. But as he moves from verse 5 to verse 6, there's still the personal pronouns that relate to David, but notice the pronouns in verse 6. The thy, thou, and thine changed to what? 
from a second person singular. Isn't it good you came today for a grammar lesson in pronouns and first person and second person and now third person? I will sing to the Lord because he, what happened? Went from second to third, but he went from talking to God to reciting to all those who would ever read, to all those who would ever hear. I will sing to the Lord. I will be continually praising the Lord to whom I have submitted my life and all of God's purposes because he, the Lord God of Israel, has dealt bountifully with me. Think of the difference between verses 1 and 2. How long, how long, how long, Lord, get me out of this, get on with this. This is uh, below my dignity and station and to I will praise the Lord habitually because as I look at my life to this moment, regardless of how despairing and desperate it might look, I understand that God took a sinner who had no hope of eternity and redeemed him with the greatest of mercy and the greatest of grace, looking forward to the cross and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever looked at life that way? In light of who God is, I am nothing and should have no expectations. And if you live life that way, for the most part, you'll never be disappointed because generally you'll receive nothing and you won't feel bad because you never thought you would. But look at it from God's perspective. He loved you so much that even though you were less than nothing, Paul said he was the greatest of sinners and the least of saints, and I don't think there's any difference between you and me and the Apostle Paul. I don't think he was singling himself out when he made those statements in the New Testament as as the worst of the worst. With one sin in our life, if you've violated the law in one point, you should have learned from Scott as you're going through the book of James and finishing it. If you break it in one point, you've broken it in how many points? All of them. Same with Paul. We are the greatest of sinners, so was David, and the least of saints. So who are we to complain? Who are we to protest God? Who are we to tell God to get on our timetable because we're impatient? And I think it all began to dawn and and flood David's heart and his mind. I will sing to the Lord. When you sing, have you ever sung a complaint as a hymn of adoration to God? Never. When you sing, you sing what? Praises, adoration, worship, that God is everything, 
I am nothing, and who I am and what I have came wholly and totally and undeserved from the hand of Almighty God. Well, David turned the corner. And there's undoubtedly some of you who are where David was in verses 1 and 2. Some of you are where he was in verses 3 and 4. And some of you are where he is now in verses 5 and 6. What a wonderful end to a psalm that didn't begin with much uh, promise, did it? But it's very, very real. Uh, Whether it's in the Old Testament, whether it's in the New Testament, uh, whether it's of uh, someone great like uh, David or somebody obscure and insignificant like you and me. Let me see if I can make a little more sense out of it. How do we understand David moving from 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 and finally to 5 to 6? Well, what happened in David's heart, which is really in David's mind? He's not making so much an emotional response or movement here as he is an intellectual, not that it didn't have emotion with it, but the emotion was driven by the intellect. I've thought about that a lot. What moved David? And I noted, number one, that his circumstances hadn't changed. He's still in the cave. Saul's still coming after him. Saul still wants to kill him. Uh, uh, Nobody showed up to rescue him. The circumstances are the same in 5 and 6 as they were in 1 and 2. Hmm. David's lack of capacity to be self-sufficient hadn't changed. He couldn't deliver himself in 1 to 2, and he couldn't deliver himself in 5 and 6. So what happened? Well, let me explain to you what did happen, and I think it's fairly obvious. And that is David's confidence in the sovereignty of God went from being about a a one-watt light bulb in verses 1 and 2 to a 1,000-watt light bulb in verses 5 and 6. Or put another way, with that upward look, David refocused on the attributes or the characteristics or the qualities of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he was reminded that God is infinite. Uh, He's inexhaustible. And with him, there are no limitations whatsoever. He was reminded that God is omnipresent. And while invisibly present, he is not absent. Where I am, he is. Where David was, God was. He was reminded that David was omniscient and that he was informed fully at any given moment of the past, present, and future. Uh, God was not ignorant of the circumstances David was in, nor the trauma that David was feeling. And I believe he was reminded that God is omnipotent. God is invincible and in no way vulnerable, 
nor are his servants vulnerable to whom he's promised victory. Boy, what a reminder. What a, what a wake-up call. God is not limited. He's not absent. He's not ignorant. He's not vulnerable. He is invincible in form fully, invisibly present, and inexhaustibly. And he is my God, and I am the sheep of his pasture, regardless of whether I'm on the highest of the mountaintops in my life experience or at the depths of the valley of the shadow of death. He is my God. He is my Lord. His promises are mine. And he is infinite, omnipresent, all-knowing, and all-powerful. Only that could have changed David's perspective since life had not changed and David had not changed from being horribly pessimistic in 1 and 2 and brightly optimistic and hopeful in verses 5 and 6. And so our dear David, the king-to-be, joined Noah, who waited 120 years from the time God promised there would be a flood and Noah was to build a boat that would save he and his family. He joined the likes of Abraham, who was long past kid-creating age, 25 years for Isaac, who would be the seed of Abraham, give birth as a father to Jacob as the seed of Isaac, whereby it says in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, comes the seed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses waited 40 years. I mean, he was 80 till God gave him what he had promised him when he was tremendously younger. Joseph waited 13 years. Job is known for his endurance. Daniel waited 70 years from the time he was taken captive to Babylon until God delivered the nation of Israel as he promised Jeremiah that he would. And on it goes. David only had to wait about 13, 14 years. Not so long in light of some of the others. Just a couple other things I think I would draw our attention to in this psalm. And we've spent all of our time in this psalm, and it's the way you study the Bible, asking, what do I see? And we saw 18 uses of the first person singular pronoun, I, my, and me. We saw a shift from second person referring to God in verses 1 to 5 to the third person in verse 6. But I want to take just a minute and talk about the things I don't see. Can you shift gears with me mentally? We know how David reacted to less than uh, optimal circumstances. I think we all would agree. But I'd like to take just a moment and talk about what David didn't do. And this is to commend David and to encourage us to walk in these footsteps. Number one, he didn't abandon God. He didn't say, God, if that's the way it is, you're no longer my God. 
and uh, I'm going to go find another ancient Near Eastern god to worship because you proved uh, impotent. He, he didn't abandon God because he didn't get what he wanted. That's commendable on David's part. Two, he didn't try to redefine God, but rather he affirmed God for who God revealed himself to be. Three, he didn't publish abroad his doubts. Now you say, what do you mean he didn't publish abroad his doubts? This is the most published book in the history of publishing. Well, when it occurred, he was by himself in a cave. And I don't believe at that point in time David had any thought, one, that he would survive, (laughs) much less that his words would be uh, uh, written down as inspired by the Spirit of God for people to read over thousands of years. He didn't publish abroad his doubts, but rather he did what? He prayed in private, and he's commended for that. Four, he didn't call the pastor. Now, I've spent my life either being a pastor or training pastors, and I'm not demeaning pastors. I'm simply saying that pastors aren't the solution to all of your problems. As a matter of fact, the only thing the pastor really brings to bear on your lives that means anything that's uh, eternally prominent is the Word of God because it is the Word of God that gives you a proper perspective on life. It is the Word of God that brings Jesus Christ to you. It is the Word of God that confronts your sin. It is the Word of God that uh, works so that you repent of your sin, embrace Christ as your Savior, and rely on the attributes of God not only for the rest of your life on earth, but for all of eternity in heaven. And your pastor can't do that for you. So the next time you have a problem, don't call Pastor Scott. Get on your knees and pray. And then call Pastor Scott and tell him what you just did and let him pray with you. Five, he didn't chuck reality. He, he didn't uh, just say, I, I, I'm in denial, this isn't happening. But he, to his credit, he did face it squarely. Note this very carefully. He did not get mad at God. He might have protested, but it was somewhat of a sanctified protest in verses 1 to 2. He did not get mad at God, but rather he ultimately did what? He worshiped him. He didn't indict God. Rather, he admitted all the way through by virtue of the fact that he was asking questions, that the problem at some level was his own lack of understanding. Number eight and number last, he didn't plea bargain with God. Did you notice that? He didn't try to coerce him. Rather, he just begged him for an honest answer. Help me understand this deal. Help me know that we're going to get to where you said we were going to get. So we can learn from David not only for the negative things he did that we ought not to follow, but the positive things that he didn't do that we ought not to do either. Got the positive and the negatives there. It's counterintuitive, but it's true. 
Waiting on God, my dear friends, is the rule of life. And immediately open doors are the exception. And if our mindset in this life is not framed by that, you need to re-regulate your thinking. Our citizenship in Christ is in heaven where we aren't now but will be later, regardless of what country you were born in or what country you reside in in an earthly sense. Secondly, waiting on God rightly means resting, not worrying. It means worshiping, not protesting. And all of those we learned from David, and I, I would encourage you to go later on to the Psalms that I mentioned, 52, 54, 56, 57, and 59, where it would appear it's later in this 13 to 15-year experience. And there is a far more spiritually mature set of prayers than the one that started out really badly and ended most wonderfully. It's a great psalm. It's short. It's fairly easy to understand and incredibly difficult to live. And I find myself coming back to it quite often. And you think a guy as old as I am should have learned that a long time ago, wouldn't you? But we're not perfected yet. We're not glorified yet. And that's why we need to keep coming back to the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God, being reminded, readjusting our thinking so that we think like the Word of God and not like the world. Let me close with this illustration. It's a true story. It's about an older missionary couple that had worked uh, in Africa in the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century. And if you know anything about that, most missionaries didn't come home from the mission field. They died of uh, disease or other disasters on the mission field. They didn't have a pension. Their health was broken. They felt defeated, discouraged, and afraid, sort of like David in Psalm 13. In those days, uh, you traveled by ship if you were going from one continent to the next, and they booked on a passage liner only to discover that the then President Theodore Roosevelt was returning on the same ship, returning home from a big game hunt uh, in deepest, darkest Africa. And as you could imagine, in contrast, everybody paid attention to the president. No one paid attention to the missionaries. Everybody hung on every word from Teddy, and they could have cared less what the missionaries were thinking or saying. It really bothered the husband. And he complained to his wife, and she says, Dear, you shouldn't feel that way. Wise wife. That's why God gives us wives. 
the ship docked uh, in New York City, and the brass band was there. The dignitaries were there, uh, and all of uh, the flair that you might imagine to receive the president, and no one was there for the missionary couple. They got off the ship and wandered into the city somewhere to rent a flat for a night or two and finally found one. And that evening, the man just uh, was sort of David in verses 1, and he, he couldn't stand it any longer. And he told his wife, I can't take this because God is treating us unfairly. Look at what we've done with our lives, how noble, how godly, how sacrificial. And she very wisely said, Honey, why don't you go in the next room and tell that to the Lord? Her point was, There's not a thing I can do for you because I can't do a thing for me, but God can. Wise wife. Short time later, he came out from the bedroom, and his wife uh, looked at his face and could see that uh, something dramatic had happened. Uh, There was a totally different look on his face. Uh, There was color in it. uh, There was sparkle in his eyes. uh, There was hope. And she said, dear, what happened? And here's what he said. He said, the Lord settled it with me. I told him how bitter I was that the president should receive this tremendous homecoming when no one met us as we returned home. And when I finished, it seemed as though, he's not suggesting the Lord spoke directly to him, but he is saying what I was then thinking, it seemed as though the Lord was saying, and it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, you're not home yet. You're not home, I'm not home, in Christ. One day we will, no matter what the world thinks of us, no matter what we didn't accomplish, no matter what state of life we're in. So I'd encourage us, skip Verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Go straight to 5 and 6 and worship God now because one day in eternity, worship will consume every moment of a life that the Bible calls eternal. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Wonderful psalm, I commend it to you.